Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com. The Bowery Boys, episode 124, Idlewild, JFK, Airport. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With another episode of the Bowery Boys New York City History, and perhaps with a topic that more people have seen with their own eyes than almost any other New York landmark, because millions and millions of people go through there. That would be, of course... We're finally doing the Empire State Building? Uh, I'm afraid not, no. Uh. This is JFK, John F. Kennedy International Airport. Thousands of people stream through here every day to national and international destinations all over the world. But the airport is a marvel in its own right. It's very unique. But this is a story more than just about the terminals or the access roads that wind around them. It's also a story about travel, about the development of mass tourism from the U.S. to Europe, because, of course, JFK handles international travel. This is a peek into the world of the 1960s jet set era, a world of major airlines, stewardesses, airport lounges, and all of this in the context of a truly motley crew of modernist architecture. Now, I tell you, what other podcast have we ever recorded, anyone has ever recorded, that will feature Robert Moses, Martin Scorsese, Flight attendant Steven Slater and a very brave dog named Brandy. Ooh, I can't wait to get to her. <laughs> During the past 50 years, the airport's been known by many different names, including Idlewild, JFK, New York International Airport, and more. So fasten your seatbelts. Bring your seats to their upright position and prepare for the history of Idlewild, JFK, New York International Airport. Okay, now that was a little loungy interlude. That was getting me in the mood. Yes, to, to set up our story here. Now, why don't we go back to the very beginning, get the basic stats of our topic here. Situate us. Well, I'm going to situate us, Greg, right in Queens, specifically on Jamaica Bay. John F. Kennedy International Airport, formerly known as Idlewild Airport, handles more international arrivals into the U.S. than any other airport. In 2009, it handled 46.5 million passengers. 
making it the 18th largest in the world. 20% of Americans who are going abroad will pass through JFK. There are 90 airlines uh, that operate out of JFK. JetBlue is based in JFK. Meanwhile, both American and Delta have major hubs in JFK, of course. It is also a major freight airport, and more than 10% of the nation's air cargo passes through JFK. There are two sets of parallel runways, or four working runways. There used to be seven. It's been cut back to four. All of that traffic goes through four runways. Yes. That sounds, that's actually extraordinary. If you think that number of million people come in on four runways. There are 25 miles of taxiways, uh, the, the roads used to sort of move the aircraft on and off the runways. In terms of layout, JFK's eight terminals are situated in an oval shape around a central area that I would not call beautiful. But it houses parking lots and other, you know, necessary services. But we'll, we will get to this. But in fact, at one time, not only was it beautiful, it was very beautiful. Wow. <laughs> I'll believe that when I hear it come out of your mouth. These eight terminals have 151 gates, and they are now connected by the air train rail service, which links the terminals as well to the New York City subway and to the Long Island Railroad. That is very broadly speaking, JFK International Airport. But JFK, of course, was not the city's first airport. No, New York actually has been in the flying business, if you want to say that, for over 100 years. I'm going to take us a little bit into a sort of a recap of right. episode number 49. Because you've talked about LaGuardia. That was the LaGuardia Airport podcast. I will try to do it in four minutes. And that way you don't have to listen to it ever again. <laughs> now, some of the first airfields in the New York area were actually on Governor's Island. It was from here in October of 1909 that Wilbur Wright, that mm-hmm. would be one half of the brother. <laughs> the Wright brother. The Wright brothers uh, who helped invent the first airplane. The one on the left. The left one, not the right one. Wright, or Wilbur Wright, uh, was is the first person to actually pilot a plane over the island of Manhattan and around the Statue of Liberty in two separate flights. Now, the age of aircraft, the age of flying, really starts around 1918 when the U.S. government decides to initiate its very first airmail route between New York and D.C. So with this was also the birth of the first airlines who were bidding for these particular contracts. Mm -hmm. There were two major airfields in the early days here. The first one was a little bit outside the New York area called Roosevelt Field. Um, It's in Hempstead, Long Island. And today it's a very lovely, gigantic shopping mall, Roosevelt Field. But it is best known, actually, it's a place where Charles Lindbergh took off in his good old spirit of St. Louis in 1927 to begin his legendary trip to Paris. The other field around this period of time was known as Floyd Bennett Field. It's actually not that far from uh, JFK Airport. It's on the other side of Jamaica Bay. They weren't really commercial airfields because that sort of flight didn't yet exist. Later, Floyd Bennett Field would become New York's very first municipal airport. But during the 30s, this was the place for famous pilots like Amelia Earhart and Wiley Post. In 1935, way over there in New Jersey, Newark Airport opened its doors for commercial aircraft. It was actually the first commercial terminal in the United States. And so we sort of consider the age of major airlines, passenger flights. We start that around 1935, from around when Newark was born. And wasn't Newark actually awarded the airmail route uh, because it was somewhat closer to Manhattan? It was indeed. They were awarded the routes. None of this, of course, 
made the mayor of New York very happy. Of course not. Around this time, of course, the mayor was Fiorella LaGuardia. He wanted to lure those mail routes out of New Jersey, bring them to New York, and he also just wanted to make flying easier for the people of his city. So... Up in northern Queens around this time, there was this is actually the site of a former amusement park. The area was called North Beach. The amusement park was called the Gala Amusement Park. It was a beer garden. There were lavish hotels here. By the 1920s, all this had closed up. LaGuardia eyed this area for an airport to develop. Many years later, the doors to New York Municipal Airport opened in 1939. The project had been so closely aligned to LaGuardia by this time, of course, that within a month after the doors opened... They just said, why not just name it after the man who wanted it in the first place? And it then became LaGuardia Airport. Now, for a short time, LaGuardia Airport was seen as very revolutionary and uh, one of the greatest airports of the time. In fact, American Airlines introduced their very first airport lounge here in 1939. However, very, very quickly, this airport, LaGuardia, already had some very serious issues. I mean, almost as soon as the doors open. Number one... Of course, kind of a problem. It starts sinking into the bay uh, due to some very severe landfill issues. Uh, it would sink on an average of six inches a year, in some places up to five to six feet. Okay? Right. So That's much faster than Venice. Much faster in, than Venice and not really serviceable if you're going to like have planes come in and out. You know, second of all, it was also in a very isolated, cornered area. No room really for like development. And believe me, by this time, even by 1942... It was almost completely inadequate because air travel was growing by leaps and bounds by this time. So it was decided that New York needed another airport to relieve the pressure off of LaGuardia. And LaGuardia himself, the mayor, was still in charge. And why not take on another project? He knew how to get a, an airport going. He knew the ropes. He had people like, say, Robert Moses involved with him, too. Certainly he could get it done. So throughout 1940 and 1941, the mayor was pushing to develop something bigger. And by the way, I think I'm just going to start referring to him as the mayor, because talking about LaGuardia... <laughs> about the LaGuardia airport? The, mentioning LaGuardia, right, it's, it, it gets too confusing. Or maybe we should call the other airport LGA. LGA and Fiorello. Go by a first name. <laughs> I'll stick to the mayor. So he's pushing for something much bigger in 1940 and 41, looking, say... At the other airport, at LGA, that airport was handling 42 operations per hour. He wanted something to handle 360 operations an hour. That's a lot. Well, but he was looking to the future. Absolutely. So he chose an area in southern Queens by Jamaica Bay, which seemed like the ideal spot because there was a lot of space to develop. And it was also situated in such a way that when planes were taking off or landing, much of that was happening over the water. So it really wouldn't be so disruptive to the neighborhoods surrounding the airport. Right, it makes sense. It wouldn't be so loud. Mm -hmm. There were some issues, of course. Once again, we'd be talking about another landfill job here because much of this land uh, that he was eyeing was quite marshy. So in 1942, the Army Corps of Engineers started pumping up sand out of the bay and an enormous amount of sand, like 43 million <laughs> cubic yards of it. What is it with airports and landfill? Floyd Bennett is mm -hmm. basically sculpted, connected to the land by landfill. The LaGuardia is practically right. you know, a foundation of it. And now well, here... I mean, we're not talking very long ago. The city was already established, and mm -hmm. they were looking for a spot to put something enormous. Right. So... Pull it up out of the muck. The location is 15 miles away from Manhattan, which seems like quite a lot, but... 
this was also the age of the automobiles. So they prepared to build a new expressway, which would link this airport with the Long Island Expressway so the cars could just zip into the city. This would, of course, turn out to be the Van Wyck Expressway. Now, what exactly was on this land already? Certainly there was something. Right. This was part of Jamaica Bay. And so there were shanties and little fishermen's huts. Uh, there was a dilapidated motel. Mm. And then, of course, the biggest structure, the biggest amount of space was taken up by the Idlewild Golf Course. And it's because of this golf course that they took over. They really bought 1,200 acres of the golf course and the surrounding land in 1941. Because of that, the airport project sort of assumed the name Idlewild Airport. You know, there was actually, interestingly, an Idlewild Aero Club, a sort of a social club of airplane enthusiasts who had been meeting in the same area and been flying their model planes and such. So once again, we have another so instance. It has, right, it has a connection to the world of flight. So in 1943, remember, we're in a war at this point, And so there's a lot going on. Preparations and construction began on the airport, um, but the whole process took years. I mean, it took years to even prepare the land to situate an, an enormous, heavy airport with these landing fields on top of this marshland. Well, not, so, not no a, small project. Right, not a lot was getting built around this time anyway, so such an ambitious project, probably they took their precious time. But the mayor just loved the project. He was fiercely proud of it. He built an observation tower in the middle of the construction site so that when visiting dignitaries would come to town, he would truck them out to the uh, construction site and they'd climb up the tower and look out and survey the progress that was happening. <laughs> he was really into it. So LaGuardia hired the architecture firm Delano and Aldrich to dream up something monumental. And monumental they did. Imagine a sort of central terminal that was loosely sort of resembled a, the Roman Colosseum. Wow. Where you entered into sort of the pit of the Colosseum and had giant ramps going up to the awaiting airplane. <laughs> wow, that sounds really cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> or grand. I was well, thinking sure, it sounded okay. grand. All right, all right. But this grand plan uh, would have cost $10 million and would have been able to handle 30,000 passengers a day. It, and it was never built. Obviously, <laughs> for a number of reasons, primarily because it wasn't big enough. This airport needed to handle more than 30,000 people a day. The demand for air travel, it just every year it kept growing and growing. So I'm sure their plans had to be radically revised every year. Not only that, but in 1945, LaGuardia retired as mayor and his successor, Mayor William O'Dwyer, had a different philosophy about all of this. He thought that LaGuardia's plans were just far too expensive. Well, he kind of saw it like a money pit, essentially, right? Right. They had already spent $71 million just draining the swamp. And, and it, that itself was going to need another $100 million. So how much was it going to cost, really, to build this coliseum? In post-war New York, yeah. Some people were even advocating that they build low-income housing out there or something else that would, you know, a, another service for the city. But they didn't scrap it. O'Dwyer hired another architect, Wallace Harrison, in 1946 to get to work on it. Now, he sounds very familiar. I think I he think was... we've talked about Was him. he the... Pet architect of the Rockefeller family, perhaps? <laughs> the court architect <laughs> yes. for the Rockefellers, yes. He brought a more contemporary aesthetic to the project. 
his plan for New York International Airport was much bigger, though less grand. He he saw also a central check-in point at the top of these soaring escalators that climbed into the sky, and then you'd proceed through a sort of shopping paradise uh, to heading off to an actual terminal that looks sort of like a giant amoeba around which there were 86 boarding gates. So a little bit like Rockefeller Center, the airport meets a shapeless blob of various terminals, right? Way to make it sound sexy, Greg. (laughs) Uh, But I, I thought it was interesting that he did incorporate shopping into the plan. And he said, and this is a quote, Along this route are the well-advertised, high-revenue-producing stands, shops, food, and liquor-venting establishments, and direct access to the newsreel theater. Well, I mean, what's an airport without a duty shop, you know? Yeah, but this was ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. This was really sort of the way of the future. However, Mayor O'Dwyer looked at these grand plans of Harrison's. He thought they sounded really expensive. (laughs) Even more expensive. Even more expensive. Now, Robert Moses was still around, was, was still in charge, you know, was, was still overseeing most, much of this project. His idea was that he would propose raising the rates for all the airlines at LaGuardia. Like, so they would, like, pay an arm and a leg, pay a lot more money, and that extra money would be used to fund the new airport. Mm-hmm. What I find amazing, this is in a very rare early defeat for Robert Moses, the airlines who keep in mind are having this are sort of like a hot industry at this particular time, a burgeoning power. They basically rejected Robert Moses. Eastern Airlines, a long forgotten airline today, but Eastern Airlines, they announced, well, if you're going to raise our rates at LaGuardia, we're not going to use Idlewild. Goodbye. In the future. They In won't the future. even fly into this. Of new course airport. not. Well, this annoyed Mayor O'Dwyer even more. So at this time, then the Port Authority of New York swoops in with a better offer and they end up taking control of all the area airports, including in the, within that decade, Newark Airport as well. So the city is selling off the rights to to run its airports along with Newark. Mm-hmm. And LaGuardia, yes. And LaGuardia and New York International, all three airports to the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Correct. And to this day, they still operate them. On a 50-year lease, mm-hmm. which was signed in 1947. So renewed in 1997, and here we have it for, well, we're stuck in the second term of the lease. In terms of the airport's layout and the terminals and the other buildings and the Van Wyck and the access roads, these would develop over the course of a couple decades Mm -hmm. and eventually into what we call the terminal city construction, which we'll get to later. For the opening of the airport, however, there was a far simpler airport that opened uh, than we have today. There was a temporary administration building and terminal that was set up to do the job. A cinder block building, totally simple, set up, built for $125,000. It was equipped with a popular observation deck on top of it so that people could just drive out to the airport and climb up to the second floor and just stand there with the family, pass the afternoon watching the planes come in and take off. I mean, it sounds so simple compared to everything that would come later, of course, but this is sort of a temporary structure for the airport. But this building would remain uh, the central terminal administration building for the next decade. What was the official name of this airport at this time when it first opened? So in all the plans, they were talking about New York International Airport. In 1948, the airport was renamed the Major General Alexander Anderson Airport. Who is that? He was a Queens resident. He had commanded a federalized National Guard unit in the South during World War I. 
and he died in 1942. Okay. So in 1948, the city council renamed it after General Anderson. They called it New York International Airport Anderson Field. So that was the official name at this point, was Anderson Field. However, everybody still called it Idlewild. I guess it was a popular golf course. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Anderson Field just sort of puttered out. Yeah. (laughs) So basically, by the late 50s, Idlewild pretty much stuck with it, right? Yes. Now, in 1948, something else significant happened, and that was that former Mayor LaGuardia passed away. This meant that he never got to see his second airport open. And and who knows if he would have even liked it. Well, I think he would have liked it. In one of his last speeches he made, he proclaimed, I'm taking this opportunity to announce to the whole world that we now have the best damn airport in the world. That, to me, is a ringing endorsement. Yes. So LaGuardia died in 1948. Yes. But didn't that, isn't that the same year that the airport opened? It did, if, just, I think, six months later. July 31st, 1948, was the actual opening day of Anderson Field. Now, a couple weeks before, on July 9th, was the first arrival, a Peruvian international airline flight from Santiago, Chile. And two weeks later, on July 14th, 1948, was the first flight out of New York International Airport, an Air France flight departed New York for Paris on Bastille Day. Mm. It took more than 14 hours to get to Paris, and it had to stop three times for (laughs) refueling, but it did make it there to much fanfare. Well, those kinds of delays would no longer be in the future for air flight very soon here. But on opening day, on July 31st, there were more than 200,000 people crammed into uh, New York International to listen to President Truman give a big speech. There was a huge air show. It was a great affair. New York had its second big airport. Now, Port Authority had some very specific, unusual plans here for the Idlewild Airport, Anderson Field here. The first one is in order to sort of drum up the business and to uh, get the ball rolling, rolling, they pulled all the international flights from LaGuardia and rerouted them here through the brand new airport. Secondly, they decided, well... In order to really pay for this airport, because it's going to keep expanding, and like the moment that you break the foundation on one building, by the time it gets done, it's probably going to be out of date. Mm. So we need to sort of bring in partners to this. And so what they decided is that instead of building one gigantic terminal, which would have to be a monstrous size in order to fit all the various airlines and all the traffic that they wanted to have come through the airport – They decided that they were going to have a series of different terminals, and each of those terminals would be owned and operated by a specific airline or a group of airlines. Sounds very practical. It was a little bit of a controversial idea at the time. People thought that they were sort of selling out, if you will. I mean, if you can imagine, you know, almost like a food court style where, um, you know, everything has a brand name and people thought that the city didn't have enough control over that and also that it might look a little, uh, shall we say, a little cluttered, perhaps even tacky. Because there wouldn't be a single unified style. But this is, in fact, the idea that took flight here Mm -hmm. at the airport. And over the next few years, these various terminals would be open. Now, instead of just sort of going down a list here, why don't I take us on a little tour of what Idlewild Airport 
would have looked like in 1965. Now, I caveat that because in 1965, it's no longer called Idlewild. But I'm just using that as a, as a set date because many of the places I want to talk about are built by then. So being the mid-60s, let's say that you, you, know, you work for an advertising agency in Madison Avenue or something. Say you're Lane Price from Mad Men and you're going back to the UK – taking a British Airways flight, you make a quick martini, you get in your limousine, you go over the Queensboro Bridge, through Queens, down through the Van Wyck Expressway after sitting in traffic for two hours, of course. Now, from an aerial view, it's almost like a box because it's being framed on two sides by runways, on the third side by the bay, and the fourth side is the opening where you come in. But as you mentioned, all the terminals inside are in a circular pattern, and back in the day, they called them the Seven Wonders. I would, you could also call them a charm bracelet because of the ah. different sizes and shapes. So if you looked at a, a charm bracelet clumsily thrown to the ground, <laughs> it's kind of what it looks like. So we're going to go counterclockwise here because there would be roads that would go around to these various terminals. Counterclockwise, Terminal 1 would be Eastern Airlines, and it was opened in October of 1959. The architect was Chester Churchill, and... Long forgotten architect. In fact, the only thing that I think that he's known for, um, which you might find interesting, Tom, is the Maparium and the oh, Christian absolutely. the Christian Science Plaza up in, in Boston. Boston. Um, yeah. That and the Eastern Airlines building. It's a gla- basically a big glass enclosed box. Nothing too special here. We're going to move on. So Terminal Two, which was uh, completed in 1962, it was for Northwest and Northeast Airlines as well as Braniff Airlines. This unusual structure, is known for its rather absurd concrete, I guess you can call them toadstools, like these umbrellas as you entered. It was just a series of like a like a selection of gigantic toadstools that would, you know, in concrete, in concrete, of course, naturally, it's the it's 62 here. Now, this terminal is still around. Um, Delta took it over in 2010. In fact, it's connected to the t- next terminal that I'm about to speak about. That would be Terminal 3. Now, it was completed in 1960. Its operator at the time was Pan Am. Mm-hmm. The great Pan Am, of course, meanwhile, they would later have a skyscraper in Manhattan that would be most notorious and they would offer a helicopter service between the skyscraper and their terminal. Exactly. Now, this is one of the true odd terminals of JFK Airport. It's known for this saucer-shaped roof. I took this from a magazine that I read about this particular building. The terminal was shaped like, quote, an elliptical concrete parasol with a crystalline set of passenger spaces underneath. It basically looks like a spaceship has landed in JFK, so maybe that's appropriate. That overhang lid, by the way, uh, was designed so that planes could actually pull underneath it mm-hmm. and so let passengers out so that they you know, could right. be shielded from the elements. Right. Now, if that shape doesn't freak you out from just thinking about it in your head... Cast your gaze upon the 12 massive bronze statues that adhered to the glass windscreen entrance in the front of it. Now, these were signs of the Zodiac by the sculptor Milton Hebbold. There was even parking on the roof of this very terminal. So you could just drive up to the terminal and park your car on top of it. Wow. On top of the spaceship. On top of the spaceship. Now, in the 1970s, they expanded it even further to accommodate the Boeing 737, these big jets. They gave it a new fancy name called the Worldport. And these expansions ended up making it the largest airport terminal in the world at that time. 
Now, the fourth building here, which today is called Terminal 4, is actually the International Arrivals Building. It was the very first building to open of the new structures in December of 1957. It was sort of set the stage for, for new and interesting design and what people had in store when they came to the airport. It was originally designed to be the largest building at the airport. It was the most functional, certainly. What's interesting is it had three floors, and you realize that up until this point that airports didn't have multiple floors or mm. didn't have need for them. Now, so we're halfway done around the little circle. I should mention what is inside the circle. So what all of these buildings... We turn our gaze to the left. Yeah, so all of these buildings are facing into this gigantic plaza. Now, today it's parking and there's barely right. anything to look at of interest. Quite different in 1965. What was, so what was there? There was what they called Liberty Plaza. It was an open space, quote, to relax the tension of travel by enchanting the eye... It was a well-manicured 220-acre walkway of just flat lawn, finished closest to the International Arrivals Building by a gigantic fountain that lit up at night. Um, it sounds absolutely lovely. What and, happened? Well, in fact, it was, a, it was done in a duplication of the Gardens of Versailles. Good heavens. <laughs> Can you imagine? Just, so just How imagine times that, have changed. So just imagine that there. Now, continuing our journey, if you're Mr. Price in the back of your limo, um, we're going to go by Terminal 5, which is the TWA Flight Center. We're going to get back to that in a second because that's the most famous of all the terminals. And you're going to speak about that one. Further around the circle here, there's just a few temporary buildings, some minor buildings. Remember this space for a little bit later because something marvelous will sprout here. Um, we will move on to the very next terminal here. In 1960, American Airlines opened a terminal. What it's known for, I really wish I had seen this in its heyday. The front of it was a gigantic stained glass window that faced into this plaza. It was 300 feet long, 23 feet high, was the largest stained glass structure in the world. Inside of the terminal was a jungle mural. Um, so basically, this was a very colorful, exotic building. Wow. And in, in which airline did this, this belong to? This was American Airlines. They really want to sell up their um, sort of exotic locations. There's, they did a lot of oh, South American course, locations yeah. at this time. And finally, around the circle, there was, there was one more terminal I want to mention at the very end as you've gone all the way around the circle. In 1960, the United Airlines terminal. Now, this one after all the drama and grandeur of the previous terminals, uh, this one was a more casual, comfortable building. Something you may see in New York City in the 60s, if you get my drift. Very uniform, very boxy, boxy but it also bent inward. So it actually helped the plaza create this sort of a sense of closure as you s encircled here throughout it, the plaza. It truly united the yes, plaza. Yes, it united, exactly. Yes. So these were the terminals that were there around this particular... It's 1965. Many more terminals would come. Some of these are no longer there. But I want to go back to Terminal 5 because it is probably the most famous of all the JFK terminals. That's the TWA Flight Center. And this was designed and developed by famed Finnish-American architect Eero Saarinen, who got the commission in 1956 from TWA at the height of the Terminal City competitiveness, because this whole project was called Terminal City. Mm -hmm. 
this whole idea was Terminal City. I think we mentioned earlier that it was like a little city. It wasn't just like one. It right. really was a city of terminals. And, you know, you said it sounds like a food court. I have to say it sounds to me kind of like the World's Fair. Oh, exactly, which because, is, by 1964 is opened in the same borough. Right. And you also had these different spaces designed by corporate entities to sort of show off their own spirit and, and brand. And I'm sure many of these terminals raced to be open by the World's Fair. So Eero Saarinen was born in Finland, moved to the U.S. Uh, when he was a teenager. He studied sculpture in Paris and graduated from Yale in 1934. He then returned, uh, after some traipsing about Europe, getting inspired, returned back to suburban Detroit, where his father, who was also an architect, ran the Cranbrook Educational Community, which is this collaborative arts academy, which is still very much flourishing. He built there his reputation as an innovative, collaborative architect. Saarinen's style is really kind of impressive. I think that we're attracted by it today because it really sort of fused a lot of different elements of mid-century modernism together. He brought in elements of Mies van der Rohe, who made these glass boxy structures in New York. Le Corbusier, of course, who was all about plasticity and morphine designs. If you've ever gone through a typical town in the Midwest, in the middle of nowhere, you've seen this very bizarre church that might have like no windows and it's like a, a box with like some sort of bizarre sculpture on it. That's either Saarinen or in the style of Saarinen right. because Saarinen he, did, he, he did very modernistic takes on very traditional buildings. Right. And he was also into using reinforced concrete in new, innovative, playful ways. So he sort of pulled these elements together. He experimented with them. This made him, I think, unpopular with critics, but a favorite of the public. They were fun to look at. TWA had asked him when they hired him to create something distinctive and memorable uh, that would, quote, express the drama and specialness and excitement of travel. His mission was not necessarily to create a user-friendly air terminal where you would walk in and easily check into your flight. They want to make a statement. And, and make a brand impact. TWA wanted actually the spot that was closest to the airport hangars, you know, for logistical reasons. But he chose a spot that was actually right in the middle of all of the access roads mm -hmm. because he wanted to be right there where all the traffic crossed and where there would be the maximum public exposure. And when he looked over at that international arrivals building that was under construction that you mentioned before, which mm -hmm. was one of these Mies van der Rohe style Type, yes. glassy boxes, mm -hmm. he decided to reject that whole theory of architecture and go for something far more playful with concrete and swooping style. He, in fact, said, quote, I align myself humbly with Le Corbusier and against Mies van der Rohe. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so the current building, it's not square at all in any sense no, of the word. It's curvaceous. Um, it's a curvaceous concrete structure. Quite impressive. It's shorter in the center and taller at the edges like a bird in flight. Like maybe the terminal is going to sort of flap its wings and take off itself. Well, it looks like a, like a butterfly, like a white butterfly or something. Mm. Well, the front is just lined with windows, which would accentuate the view of the airplanes arriving and taking off. The interior is undulated concrete, sweeping in from the sides and curving down to a central grand staircase. 
The checking counters uh, were tucked away off to the sides where you could leave your luggage and then climb the staircase toward another wall of windows, which would look out over the runway. And all along the way, up the staircase and down the hallways and such, were these great red carpets, which were the colors of TWA. So, so what, a little brand reinforcement. Well, it was only white and red colors you saw as you were you know, racing for your flight. Or was- for a cocktail. <laughs> Exactly. Now, they had lounges and, and different things here, Yes, too, in fact, right? they had the Lisbon Lounge up on one side or the Paris Cafe on the other. Restaurants and cocktails, a great restaurant, all with great views of the runway, of course. And everything, everywhere. There was curving concrete, sky-high windows and light, great mod, pod-like furniture, <laughs> and lots and lots of ashtrays. <laughs> I should mention, by the way, that at this period of time, he's also continuing the work at what would be known as probably his most famous construction, which, of course, would be the St. Louis Arch in St. Louis, Missouri, that unmistakable icon of the city, icon of St. Louis. And it seems like they're sort of related in certain respects. I mean, especially the drama of having all white concrete. The terminal opened on May 28th, 1962. That's one year after the architect passed away. So he never actually saw his terminal opened. He did, and he died before the arch was completed also. That's sad. In 1994, New York City designated the terminal a landmark, and the U.S. Park Service designated it a historic place in 2005. So much of it is protected. TWA, of course, went out of business, and the terminal was closed in 2001. However, in 2005, construction began on an adjacent terminal for JetBlue Airlines, which opened in 2008. And now that new terminal incorporates parts of this TWA terminal, and there are plans afoot to also allow check-in and and arrivals through the original Saarinen building. So stay tuned. So let me take us back here to the mid-1960s again. And many of these buildings that we've just discussed, they're brand spanking new. They have that new airplane smell to them. Mm. By this time, we've basically entered the jet age. The birth of the jet airliner... Um, was in the 1950s. This allowed for longer flights without refueling on these terrible stops. They didn't have to do those. And you also had larger planes. The very first jet plane from Idlewild Airport was in October of 1958, um, a Pan Am flight from New York to Paris. And all the airlines had them by the early 1960s. They kind of had to scramble because when they started construction of a lot of these terminals, they hadn't figured how to deal with the jets at at that time because they were bigger and they're louder and they'd take a lot more personnel. So they didn't necessarily fit at the same sized gate. No, but because of the size, they could also fly more people. The number of flights and passengers greatly increased by the early 60s. It not only influenced their own business plans, but in fact, the whole world of jet setting was developed by this time. This uh, this whole idea of catering to these newly found business travelers who they could now, you know, travel internationally and come back during the work week. They couldn't, they weren't able to do that before this time. All these terminals, as you mentioned at TWA, all these fashionable lounges, bars, VIP clubs, these luxury services that had developed around travelers that had money, like the helicopter rides, livery cabs. Airlines had to expand rapidly and come up with all these little bells and whistles to attract passengers. 
Most notably, of course, the advent and the development of the stewardess. Mm. Um, airlines began advertising their own employees as a little benefit to the flight, almost virtual palaces to sex with beautiful air hostesses. In 1965, a New York ad executive for Braniff Airlines came up with this very clever and popular campaign where they redesigned the interiors of the planes to mod flashy colors. And the stewardesses wore trendy, fashionable dresses and some flights even had the quote air strip where the stewardesses during the flight would start taking off their clothes as they were serving they would like take off a layer until at the very end of the flight as a sort of tease as they would say it would make the flight go by much faster to, to be more serious here, so a tragedy happened that actually sort of changed the cachet of the airport. In November of 1963 is when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. One month later, Idlewild's name was officially changed to John F. Kennedy International Airport. Now, this may be an urban legend, but I find this very fascinating. Now, you, ha- you know how airports have certain codes, you know, the three-letter sure. codes? Sure. Um, JFK, so I- yes. LGA. Idlewilds was IDL. Now, originally, the airport's code was KIA, Kennedy International Airport. So that was in 1964. Mm-hmm. But now, just a few years later, we're thinking late 60s, what's happening in the world? We have the Vietnam War. KIA means something quite different, killed mm-hmm. in action. You don't really want an airport with that as the airport code. So that's when they switched it to JFK, and it still has that today. Now, perhaps the most famous arrival into the airport came in February 7th of 1964. Can you guess who that, that might be? Who would have drawn thousands of screaming girls mm-hmm. to the airport? A gaggle of boys with mod haircuts. (laughs) That's right. The Beatles, uh, they had their first press conference and their first appearance in the United States then. Which is great because then the airport is becoming a place that embraces popular culture in the same way that, say, Grand Central Station did right? a generation before. Exactly. It's entering the popular imagination now because now everybody uses it. And a lot of celebrities during this period would have photo shoots as they exit a plane or at the airport with their little roller bag or anything. And because it's international travel too. This was the big international gateway for Americans to Europe and for Europeans coming to the state. Now, in the late 60s, early 70s, of course, with there, would be, there would be new terminals built. There would be more parking. It's around this time that like that lovely Versailles uh, right. with the fountain and everything. Bit the dust was tor- replaced by an Alamo <laughs> with rental a, car. An Alamo rental car and lots of uh, parking. Do you remember when I was doing the tour and I mentioned that era that had the sundry buildings? In 1970, a brand new terminal would be opened there. It was called the Sundrome. This was not part of the original terminals, but would be one of the most famous ones there. It was designed by IMP. It's the least dated of all the structures, I think. It's It seemingly has no walls. It's window wall construction, uh-huh. is what they like to call it. It brings in beautiful amounts of sunlight. Um, it's still around, but it's under threat at this very moment of being demolished. Now, by the 1970s, there would be a wild contraction of airport powers. There would be a lot of mergers, there would be a lot of bankruptcies. By this time, of course, unfortunately, there had been several accidents already at the airport itself and some fantastically almost filmic close calls, like one I'm about to describe that happened in May 9th of 1972. 
there was a Transworld airline flight that was going to Los Angeles that left JFK. It had gotten airborne when all of a sudden they got a phone call saying that there was a bomb on board the plane. They returned to JFK. They took all the passengers out. And so the bomb was still on the plane. So they brought in a bomb-sniffing dog. Now, we didn't. Uh. They, these weren't in regular practice. So they had a bomb-sniffing dog. Her name was Brandy. Brandy was brought on board. She immediately found the bomb 12 minutes before it was about to detonate. So they were able to deactivate the bomb. Brandy was a hero. And then due to this event, President Nixon that very week initiated the FAA Explosives Detonation Canine Team Program. And so today you'll go to bus stations, train stations, and you'll see these security dogs that are equipped and trained to sniff out bombs and other kinds of explosives. Now, if that doesn't sound filming enough for you, there were actually a couple great heists that have come out of JFK. One that even inspired a movie. Indeed, JFK has known its heists. In 1967, there was $420,000 in cash stolen from the Air France cargo terminal. And it turns out that Air France was carrying great sums of money between Southeast Asia and the U.S. for banking purposes. And there was a thief named Henry Hill who hatched a plan to steal the safe box key from the armed security guard. But how was he going to distract this security guard? <laughs> he hired an escort, a woman, to distract him, in fact, to oh, a, a nearby motel. An escort escort. In, in a real oh, okay. in escort in the high heels and neon pink kind of way. <laughs> exactly. But an expensive escort. Well, I don't know about the pink. Okay. <laughs> While she was distracting him at the at the motel, he copied the key. And then on April 7th, 1967, Hill and an associate had gotten word that a huge amount of money was going to be delivered that night. They drove to the Air France cargo terminal, just like they were picking up lost luggage, walked in. There was nobody there. They unlocked the door to this lockbox and stole $420,000 without any problems, without any gunfire. And nobody even noticed. That was a Friday night. Nobody even noticed until Monday morning. This really shows you how lax security was back in, the, back in the day compared to what it is now. Well, in their defense, I mean, they did have, you know, just one key on a guy who never left sight of it unless he was in a motel <laughs> and otherwise engaged. <laughs> I like that heist because it's sort of simple. It's very human. I can understand it. <laughs> mm -hmm. A much bigger heist happened about a decade later, 11 years later, in 1978, on December 11th, in the Lufthansa terminal. It was a much bigger job. $5 million in cash and $875,000 in jewels were stolen. It involves multiple mafia families, mm -hmm. dozens of characters. The whole thing was started because of a tip that huge amounts of U.S. dollars were being flown into the States by Lufthansa that was meant for American servicemen and tourists in West Germany. This money was being stored in a vault out of JFK when the word leaked out, the mob wanted in, and these mafia families actually collaborated. They carefully planned this whole heist and nearly flawlessly executed the entire thing. It was done in the middle of the night with all kinds of workers getting gagged and smacked and forced to open up various <laughs> locks. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately for the criminals, they didn't get rid of the getaway van as had been planned, because the guy who was going to get rid of the getaway van mm. decided instead to get high on drugs and hang out at his girlfriend's apartment for the night. Oh. And the police, of course, found the van. And then the whole story deteriorates as the mobsters blame each other and one by one take each other out. 
for much more on this, to see it dramatized, <laughs> I recommend the 1990 Martin Scorsese film Goodfellas. Oh, sure, it's part of the it's part of the plot. Pretty central, the yeah. classic, wonderful movie. Recent history at JFK, even more contraction of the airline industry. I mean, even some of the terminals have been torn down. Others have been combined. They're constantly building onto others. For instance, the American Airlines very controversially took down that stained glass right. window. and uh, the tableau. They com- yes. And uh, they completed a new terminal in 2007. The glamorous luster that once emitted from the world of travel in the 1960s no longer is around today. I mean, after September 11th, the security infrastructure at JFK has certainly changed. The newest edition just last year, I went through one myself, is those, those little body scanners. Mm. Your body sans clothes is seen on screens. There have been a couple absurd recent events in JFK history, one in February of 2010 when a certain air traffic controller brought his children in to call out planes. That right. person lost his job. And then, of course, later in August of 2010, a disgruntled JetBlue air flight attendant by the name of Steven Slater very notoriously pulled the emergency slide after a little scuffle with a customer, grabbed some beers and escaped down into the tarmac. Right down the slide. You know, it's a pity that Slater didn't actually just go into Saarinen's TWA terminal and hang out in the Lisbon Lounge. Oh, right. Well, he could have actually kept sliding down the various contours of the TWA terminal. The undulating concrete. <laughs> Grab some more beers. Now, I should end the podcast here by talking about the trials and tribulations that New Yorkers have had from getting to and from JFK Airport. Today, we have the air train that takes us between two different subway stops, and it's a separate fare, which isn't perfect, but it's better than what we used to have. Mm. Back when the Van Wyck Expressway was originally built by Robert Moses, he sort of refused to incorporate rapid transit into its construction. Which is really hard to believe. Really no no surprise, right? I mean, sure enough, the moment Van Wyck was open, it became one of the most hellish expressways <laughs> in the New York City metropolitan area. With all of these cars going in there with no rapid transit available for JFK, it would became a nightmare to park there. Another reason they had to tear down those lovely fountains and everything. So the city built the JFK Expressway, which is one of the newest expressways in the city in 1991. And then, of course, course, the air train came along in 2003. Don't call it a monorail. It's a $1.9 billion project. It's a people mover system, um, which is a sort of a modified third rail system of travel. It's very clean. Oh, so it's not a monorail. It's not at all a monorail. It just feels like a monorail. Right. It feels very clean, slick, very Canadian. <laughs> I will leave you only with a little glimpse into the future, and that glimpse is called the Airbus A380. It is the largest airplane in the sky at this very moment. It recently debuted in JFK in 2007. This new conveyance, even a larger airplane, is going to require even further renovations and further changes to the airport as this gets more popular and a cheaper way to fly. It's huge. I don't know if you've seen pictures. Oh, in fact, it's absolutely. So, in fact, it's so huge. Just a couple months ago at JFK, the Airbus clipped another smaller dinky airplane that sort of like swirled around in disarray. So that's the future. For some visuals of the past, please visit our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. And trust me, I will have a lot of pictures. This is a extremely photogenic topic this week. I'm very happy about that. 
I just want to dedicate this podcast to Sean Nowicki and to all of those out there who fly the sometimes unfriendly skies. We have a lot of listeners in the travel industry. So this one is for you guys. Thanks for listening. And thanks, everybody, for listening. If you haven't already, you can join us on Facebook by searching for The Bowery Boys. We'd love to have you join the fam. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.